Hi, welcome to the Tell Me What You're Proud Of podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maggie Perry. I'm a licensed psychologist with a doctorate degree in clinical psychology. I'm also the founder of the online group therapy platform, Huddle.Care. I love helping people overcome anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, mood disorders, and stress. Please join us each week as we share real sessions with actual clients that reveal helpful techniques for effectively dealing with anxiety, OCD, mood disorders, and stress. We'll discuss what effective therapy looks like, sounds like, and feels like. We'll follow our guests as they overcome their biggest fears and find that despite their biological vulnerabilities, they can still live a rich, full, and meaningful life. My therapeutic approach is strengths-based and seeks to find and reinforce what clients do well to help them generalize those skills towards areas where they're stuck. My model for psychotherapy can be summed up as this. You tell me what you're proud of, and I'll help you become effective and happy across all areas of your life. Thanks for listening, and let's get the show started. Hi, it's Dr. Maggie Perry, and this is Tell Me What You're Proud Of. Today I have on Dr. Jessica Bull. She is a psychologist in West LA, and we're talking about my sessions with John. So Jessica, thanks so much for being on the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Great. So can you tell me what kind of reactions you had as you listened to the sessions I had with John? Yeah, I um, I found him to be really insightful about, um, you know, his own process and the journey that he's been on. Uh, it sounds like he's been working with you for quite some time and his self-awareness about um, his internal experience has really grown. It sounds like over time, like um, he has really good language to describe, um, you know, a lot of the concepts that you talk about, whether it's um, intrusive thoughts to clinical perfectionism, he seems to really understand how they operate uh, in, in, in internally. And um, and he, I think what was also really wonderful is I think he did a good job of um, showing the, pro- like the therapeutic process that it takes time, right? That, mm-hmm. you know, he, he might've understood cognitively a lot of the concepts maybe towards the beginning of the work, but um, that it took his body experimentation. And he, I think he used the word like leap of faith several times. Like he had to actually, I think, you know, do um, do some small exposures to also uh, to have a more somatic kind of awareness of safety or to, to experience safety in his body. Like when he would sort of, you know, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I can't remember any of the particular exposures, but, yeah. um, yeah. So I think he just did a really good job of describing like what that looks like. Um, and that, that it's a continuing process, right. That like he continues to have new content areas pop up. And, um, I really liked how you were able, I think towards the end of the second session, um, he talked about having judgments during group and you were able to really help him um, contextualize some of those thoughts as possibly being like new content areas related to um, harm OCD. So I, I really liked that. Yeah, I agree that he's a great example of internalizing the process and that he's moved through a number of different content areas. So starting with contamination, moving through health anxiety, and then being able to see with his social anxiety that um, something like doing a podcast was an exposure. I think that was really 
wonderful for me to hear because it, you could see that he knew it was going to be anxiety provoking and he kind of interpreted that as an opportunity. Um, and I think across the board, when people start to take their content areas and use them as examples to generalize the skills of going towards anxiety rather than bracing and avoiding, then, you know, um, you know, it's just a, uh, indication of the resilience of their recovery. Like they're still going to have experiences where anxiety shows up, perhaps they have thought action fusion, perhaps they avoid, but if they can quickly shift into like, this is an opportunity. And if I don't avoid right now, not only do I have a moment, that's an opportunity for empowerment, but also I'll likely suffer less and likely be less likely to get, um, I'll be less likely likely to get stuck in a cycle that I might've gotten stuck in, in the past. Yeah. 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 I think the way I think about that is like, um, he's really learned the process so that he doesn't get stuck in content, right. That he can like zoom out and realize like, Oh, this is a, another version of, um, thought action fusion. And, uh, when clients seem to like really, uh, be able to have enough practice with different content areas to see the, the the process for what it like what it is kind of seeing the forest for the trees or whatever you know being able to sort of um, like find themselves in that process then it's like they know sort of how to relate you know differently in that moment and that was yeah cool. and just for the listeners thought action fusion is when having a thought feels like it's true. So you have a thought like, what if I'm contaminated? And it feels like you are contaminated. So he's been able to jump from uh, contamination fears like that one over to something like a social anxiety fear and thought action fusion in the context of social anxiety would be something like having the thought that people don't like me feels like people don't like me. So I choose to avoid and maybe not go to that social situation because that's that thought feels like I've already been rejected. Um, so it's um, quite a bit of work to educate yourself about what your triggers are and what type of thought action fusion you might have, and then have the um, motivation and accountability to actually go towards it. And I think he's done a great job with that. The other kind of terms that we're using, content and process, um, content is something like what your fears are. So content for OCD could be harm, could be harm would be what if I'm going to harm someone or what if someone's going to harm me? Contamination is something like what if I'm contaminated by something or going to contaminate something? Um, but then worry can also have content like work or finances or, or relationship. So what we mean by content versus process is that um, rather than getting stuck in whatever worries or intrusions that our mind is stuck on, we're looking at the process that the anxiety is um, can like repetitively uh, generating. And so that specific process is I'm having a thought, it's arriving with a whoosh of anxiety, and then it's giving me the urge to do something to make it go away. And John has done a great job internalizing the, that process that anytime a new version of having a thought arriving with a um, a whoosh of anxiety and giving him the urge to not do something is a time that he shifts into like, this is actually an opportunity. If I don't avoid right now, then I'm going to be less likely to get that whoosh next time. Well said. Thank you. Um, was there anything else that was coming to mind while you were um, listening to the session with John? 
Um, yeah, I think, uh, so you mean like overall or in terms of like where I, um, like where I would have, you know, tried to add, uh, you know, something different or have, you know, deepened in a particular way? Yeah. Where would you have gone differently? Um, well, I definitely, I would have just added things. I wouldn't take anything away. I think you did, you know, a, a really good job of helping him, um, kind of get across all of the, all of the things that he's learned and how he's really evolved, um, in his own relationship with himself, um, and, and understanding about how his anxiety functions. Um, I think that, you know, the places where I, um, would have maybe kind of opened up a little bit more inquiry would have been, um, probably more around moments where he talked about emotion, emotions and, um, you know, I, I think there was one instance in particular where he talked about being frustrated in a conversation that he was having with his mom. Um, and you sort of elucidate, he was, he was sharing that he had to withdraw from the conversation. And I think you were helping to explain how that was a moment of self-care for him. Um, and because sometimes right, when we withdraw, it can be a form of avoidance. And I think you're helping to, to differentiate, um, that. And I think, you know, he, and he did share a little bit about feeling frustrated with her because she couldn't, she was, she was, um, he couldn't solve a, a problem for her. He didn't really get into the content of what the discussion was about, but it seemed like his mom was perseverating about, um, something and she, ha she wasn't able to sort of resolve it. I think she was just, um, uh, venting essentially. And I think, you know, he was saying that it was, it was really frustrating. So I would be really, I, I was very curious to hear more about what that experience of frustration was for him. And if he, I think everyone can relate to sort of somebody venting and then like being on the receiving end of that and sort of, um, and not like feeling like you can't do anything about that and that they're not necessarily doing anything to help themselves. So I get that generally that can be annoying, but I, I got like this and I got the, you know, into had an intuitive moment of like, I wonder if there's also, um, almost like, I mean, it sounds like he might've also had some anxiety as it was happening because of the need to withdraw versus like, this is just sort of a broken record and I'm bored or it's not the greatest conversation, but, um, I would have, wanted to explore more with him about, um, that experience and, and maybe helping him, um, if it was possible to deepen his awareness about, um, you know, what particularly felt so triggering about that situation that he had to sort of withdraw. So, you know, if there was a sense of helplessness, that was coming up for him about not being able to solve the problem. And if that helplessness um, maybe is also related to older experiences in his life of feeling helpless. And, um, and I would maybe, you know, generally talk about that, or I might even specifically given he was talking to his mom, you know, and that our parents very often contribute to some of the, um, kind of emotional dynamics that can be triggering for us. 
Um, I would maybe even specifically ask him if like that was a common experience for him either as an adult or growing up that when, you know, he, that there are times when he interacts with his mom and, um, feels really helpless to help her and that it's actually kind of dysregulating or anxiety provoking. And I might just actually open up a door there to sort of explore some of that, um, both because I think it's helpful for him to understand that, but also like for him, it would be helpful for him to understand like, oh, right now I'm actually being quite triggered by feeling whatever it was, like helpless or angry, um, understanding more about if there's like a historical leg legacy to that experience, um, specifically with his mom, but also because doing that work would give me a chance to sort of, um, like do interventions that are more, maybe more embodied to help him maybe explore the experience of frustration bottom up. So like, again, you know, asking him if there are words or images or sensations that he can be aware of if he slows down to sort of pay attention in the moment. Um, so yeah, I think, yeah. I don't know where exactly it would go, but I think that would be a, a place for me to sort of, um, do something different in that moment. Yeah, I really like where you're headed with that. Um, and I'm I'm wondering if we can talk about it conceptually because his um, stereotypically cognitive behavioral therapy doesn't go into child early childhood experiences and kind of the the emotional legacy of your relationship with your parents, but it does seem like the way that you're talking about it could be seen from a CBT framework. So can. Can you say a little bit more about how you see that type of exploration being consistent with a cognitive behavioral conceptualization? Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, um, we're in CBT, right? The idea is that our thoughts um, and, and, how much we believe our thoughts, right? There's like the thought that happens kind of automatically or habitually. And then also um, if we're brought, if it's brought to our attention that we're having the thought, we also kind of can then um, judge whether or not we think the thought is true. And being able to um, first become aware of the thought and then understand if we buy it and if we think it's true um, can change our relationship with the thought and that can actually change how we feel, right? So if we realize that we have a thought, but, and we never even were aware that we were having a thought and it was bumming us out or it was making us anxious. And then we realized that the thoughts actually, oh, I don't have to worry about that anymore because it's not true. That can actually reduce our anxiety. Sometimes what I find, right, is that with clients, um, they're really aware that the thought isn't true. Um, but the, the fear or the um, anxiety doesn't seem to dissipate that as the very quickly. Or, you know, some clients really, they don't see a reduction um, in the anxiety when they understand that the thoughts are not true. So I, I think part of what's going on in those moments or in those situations is that, you know, um, the, the body... The, the mind is, is very important in, in how we understand what's happening inside of us and how we can heal and, and change. 
Um, but the body also is giving messages all the time to us, right? We have the vagus nerve, which kind of starts in our tummy and really ends in our brainstem and, you know, kind of, uh, goes up through the thoracic area and it's, mostly giving information, 80% of the, the pathway is going from body to mind. So even if mind is saying, hey, this isn't true, mind, this is safe. Like, you know, there's no reason to be anxious. There's no reason to judge yourself right now. People aren't judging you. The body is um, giving all kinds of signals, right? Through neurotransmission, through like, uh, well, I don't actually know if it's called neurotransmission, but different chemicals essentially are coming up and saying, hey, you should be worried. And so the mind is saying one thing and the body is saying another. And again, I think why the body is doing that is because it survived um, by giving the signal of danger when there was an environment that kind of repetitiously was very dangerous. I'm talking about kind of relational trauma that happens with our parents, right? And this can be neglect, you know, emotional neglect. This can be um, being made fun of. This can be criti you know, having critical parents. It doesn't have to be sexual or physical trauma. It can be all these other things too. Although those things also obviously impact us very much. And so, the body um, starts to kind of almost feel as if it's a, it, that, as if we're children again, and the intensity of our experience can be as high as it was as a child, right? And so, and, and to add to that, right, when we're children and our parents are sort of not able to attune to us, the threat feels really high. It feels, you know, like sometimes it can feel like life or death, right? The fight or flight and the freeze responses really come online. Um, when we feel dysregulated and when we feel overwhelmed. Because when we're young, we can't really regulate our own experience unless we have parents who are able to help us articulate what's going on. And if there's a threat and we don't have someone to help us, it's, it overwhelms our nervous system and we go into fight or flight or freeze. And so fast forward to being an adult, when we're in a situation that kind of tastes emotionally or situationally like something that happened when we were young that was very threatening, our body habitually goes into the response of this threat, right? And it's not, and our mind doesn't know that that's happening in the moment, right? Our mind just uh, is like, I don't know why my body is overreacting, but I know that I'm safe, but I can't stop feeling this intense anxiety. And it still keeps me from doing the things that I want to do most of the time, or I'm white knuckling it, right? And so being able to help a client understand, like, this is, a, this is the historical legacy of a kind of trauma, and to help them to slowly um, kind of put the pieces together, right? Or draw the lines to like, why is it that when I feel helpless or why is it that when I feel judged or why is it that when um, somebody's saying something to me, I feel back into a corner, like understanding why certain triggers um, might be so triggering and, and some, and how um, that the experience of feeling helpless as a child really was threatening. And so it makes sense that their body is responding with a fire alarm. And so being able to remind their body like, oh, when you were a kid and your mom got really upset and she looked depressed, it was threatening because she wasn't able to emotionally be there for me. And that was really hard, you know? And now when she's, when she's in her own space and she's venting and I feel like I can't do anything about it, 
that, that, that fear comes up in my body. And so I have to just remind myself, like, I'm not a child anymore. And even though it sucks that she's really upset and I can't help her, it's not actually threatening to me in the same way because I'm, I'm not dependent on her in that way. It's not life-threatening to me if something happens to her. It would be incredibly sad or, you know, so just reminding, you know, the client about how as an adult, they're able to sort of emotionally regulate themselves and maybe financially take care of themselves and physically take care of themselves in a way that wasn't possible when they are children. And so it's sort of like helping the mind remind the body, like, hey, actually it's safe, but with a really contextualized understanding about why body is so activated. And for some clients, there is no memory particularly of like what happened, either because there's been a lot of um, dissociation or disconnection from the cognitive memories. Um, but you can, you know, when, when people notice like, yeah, I'm disproportionately triggered by this, they start to understand that that's a hint that the young part of them did experience um, a feeling overwhelmed in whatever adult uh, emotion or fear they're bringing to you. And so you can kind of track it that way. Does that make sense? It's a lot. Yeah, absolutely. And what I'm left thinking that you're kind of saying, but I just would love to hear you reiterate it. How does that connection between mind and body then... Um, help someone overcome an anxiety disorder or whatever they're coming in to to work on? Yes. So I think it's like the same way that understanding that like you were having. So before people really kind of, I think, go into therapy, a lot of the times they're saying things to themselves all the time, but they don't know they're saying it. It's happening below the level of awareness. And so they're not able to sort of decide whether or not the thought is true. They just, for example, catastrophizing, right? You, 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 you do it and you don't know you're doing it. And then all of a sudden you're really scared. And so when you help a client understand like, well, you're telling yourself that you're going to lose your job and become homeless. They're like, oh yeah, that's why I'm so scared. Cause like, I really was telling my body that it was about to be homeless. Similarly, when people have the, and like kind of have this aha moment of like, oh, my body is reacting so intensely right now because over and over again, I, f- I had to watch my parent not be able to get out of bed and I had to take care of myself. And that felt really threatening. So now when I, when I see somebody else feeling really depressed and I feel so triggered, it's like, now I understand like, oh, my body is sort of reliving that experience. And so if I can kind of remind my body, like, hey, you're safe. And if I can bring almost like a parenting sense of compassion and curiosity and just labeling what's going on inside of me, there is something inherently stress reducing or anxiety reducing about being able to give language and to have understanding about what's going on inside of us. So the actual education about how the past is living in the present and how it's impacting us really helps assuage people's anxiety because there's an understanding about what's going on inside of them, right? The unknown about why we get so triggered sometimes in itself is anxiety provoking. And I will add, there's an opportunity to do self-touch, right? So putting a hand over the heart um, because we, we really do, um, we can really actually 
regulate and kind of soothe our own body by, by doing self-touch in certain areas, by giving ourselves a hug, you know, um, the, the language of the mind is, is language or the, the way that the mind communicates is through language, but the way that the body communicates is through sensations. And so, um, touch as a sensation is the original sort of language of safety, right? because that's how we knew we were safe when we were young before we even had language. So being able to sort of remind, have mind remind body that it's safe and that it's triggered because as a kid, the situation that they're currently in was really life-threatening or very threatening. And then to kind of add this oomph of like being able to provide comfort through touch to ourselves really can create a very powerful message to the nervous system that it's safe. Thank you so much. So everything about that was really wonderful. I think I like to talk about curiosity and compassion also, but often from a different angle. So thank you so much for everything you just said about the mind and the body. Um, do you have anything else you want to say before we end? Um, just that I think you do incredible work and I'm grateful that you exist as a clinician in this space. Um, and just hope you keep doing what you're doing. Thanks so much. Same to you. Thanks for your time. Thanks. Bye. Thank you so much for listening. If you felt any benefit from the show, please let us know and share it with anyone you think would also find benefit. As a disclaimer, please consult your doctor or therapist before attempting any strategy shared here. Thank you.